Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold arrived in Philadelphia on June 19th of 1778 in a luxurious coach attended by servants occupying the same mansion that had served as General Howe's headquarters only days before. This action, as well as his ostentatious lifestyle, contributed to criticism that Arnold was really a loyalist sympathizer. Philadelphia was a hornet's nest of swirling political attitudes, with a deeply radical element that demanded severe punishment of the Tories who had openly supported the British during their occupation. Arnold's conduct also begged the question as to where he was getting the money to underwrite his household. The answer was that Arnold was using his office to enrich himself with various schemes, either signing his name to allow for local merchants to bypass military restraints on commerce or personally buying up provisions and goods abandoned or seized from loyalists who had fled the city. How specifically Arnold profited from such schemes has never been determined, but there is no dispute that the basement of his Philadelphia mansion was crammed with food that would be served within his household. It is not much of a stretch to assume that Arnold, a skilled merchant, would be able to engage in numerous schemes to generate what he felt to be well-deserved income. In fact, his behavior was practiced by other American generals who reasoned that they were either unpaid or compensated with currency that was next to worthless. As one of the most prominent Americans in the city of Philadelphia, Arnold would mingle with the most prestigious members of the city's high society. This would include Edward Shippen, a wealthy politician who had lost his judgeship over suspected loyalist sympathy. Although the newly created Pennsylvania bureaucracy excluded him from political office, Shippen remained part of the city's social elite. It would not be long before Arnold not only met Shippen, but his daughter, Margaret, at one of the many gatherings occurring at the Shippen home. Margaret Peggy Shippen was only 17 when she met Arnold, but by all accounts was extraordinarily beautiful, even at this young age. The Shippen household was also the site of socializing between British officers and Peggy and her high society female friends during the city's occupation, and she had made a similar impression on this group as well. Practically upon his arrival in Philadelphia, Benedict Arnold began to spend time with Peggy and also began the laborious formal process of 18th century courtship that involved letters not only to Peggy but to her father as well. Edward Shippen was less than enthralled with Arnold, both because of his crippled leg and his perceived lack of social stature. But Arnold's publicly benign attitude toward loyalists being persecuted by hostile elements within the city and subsequent purchase of Mount Pleasant, a 90-acre estate on the outskirts of Philadelphia, gradually wore the elder Shippen down. 
that Arnold deeded the estate to Peggy and any subsequent children underlined his status as a determined man of means. While his pursuit of material possessions and income might have endeared him to his potential father-in-law, Arnold's behavior alienated a large political force that had recently emerged within the colony of Pennsylvania. Although much of the opposition to British rule came from a wealthy merchant class like Benedict Arnold's, others were working-class individuals more opposed to the classist and elitist aspects of the British crown, and also suspicious of any potential attempt to substitute military rule for the monarchy. Benedict Arnold, as the major symbol of American military authority in the region, already would have been viewed with hostility, but his opulent ways, courtship of a suspected loyalist daughter, and neutrality regarding persecution of those suspected of Tory sympathy earned him the deep animosity of several of the region's politically powerful individuals. One of these individuals, Joseph Reed, the de facto civilian governor of the state, was determined to criminally charge Arnold for various crimes concerning Arnold's use of his office for economic gain. This dispute would lead to legal wrangling over which colonial political institution had the right to prosecute Arnold. Ultimately, the Arnold affair would be handled with a court-martial administered by George Washington. Although a military panel would clear him of all but two charges, the process would drag on until late January of 1780. That Washington published formal criticism of Arnold and privately expressed his personal disappointment to the general seems to have been a final straw. Already bitterly resentful, Arnold now viewed Washington as among the many who had slighted him despite his best efforts. Benedict Arnold's contact with the British began even before his court-martial. Arnold married Peggy Shippen on April 8, 1779. They intended to live at Mount Pleasant, but indicative of Arnold's already precarious financial situation, the estate became a rental property out of necessity. The general was deeply in debt, a situation exacerbated by now having to support a beautiful woman who liked the finer things in life and entertained lavishly. Peggy Shippen was also an unabashed loyalist who no doubt played on her husband's love, bitterness, and possible belief that the American Revolution was doomed. Arnold also received word during this time period that expenses incurred as far back as the Quebec campaign would be examined by a congressional committee. By May of 1779, even before he was formally court-martialed, Benedict Arnold had clearly decided to switch sides and began to covertly communicate with the British military. Such a process would have been relatively simple. During the British occupation, Peggy Shippen interacted closely with several British officers and enjoyed a flirtation with Major John Andre, a member of British Commander Sir Henry Clinton's staff. Peggy continued to communicate with Andre after the British retreat from Philadelphia, and when the British officer was appointed to head Clinton's intelligence efforts, the Arnolds exploited this connection. On Arnold's behalf, a Philadelphia loyalist named Joseph Stansbury covertly met personally with Andre in New York City and established ground rules for communication by letter involving secret code and invisible ink. Throughout 1779, Arnold provided Andre and Sir Henry Clinton information about troop movements. When he began to request large sums of money for his defection, Andre made it clear that this must involve the surrender of a major army or military installation. While this back-channel negotiation proceeded throughout the end of 1779 and into 1780, 
Arnold faced difficulty on several fronts. In addition to his formal court-martial, he was now considered a blatant loyalist by many in Philadelphia who literally attacked his home during riots prompted by high food costs and general unrest. That Congress did nothing to protect him or his family only added to his long list of personal grudges. Congress also not only finally refused to pay Arnold's various requests for expenses incurred both in Quebec and Philadelphia, it ultimately concluded that Arnold actually owed the Congress money that he had been allocated during these time periods but could not properly account for. Unfortunately, much of the precise records that Arnold had kept had been lost during the hasty retreat from Quebec and upstate New York. Deciding that he could no longer maintain his opulent official lifestyle in Philadelphia, Arnold resigned his military command in April of 1780 and moved into a smaller residence owned by his father-in-law. By May of 1780, Arnold had already spoken to Philip Schuyler about using the latter's influence with Washington to secure the command of the American Fortress Complex at West Point. By now, he was also involved in intense negotiations with Clinton via Andre over specific compensation should he change sides and deliver a significant military objective. This interaction heated up in June after Clinton returned to New York from a successful campaign in South Carolina that forced the surrender of Charleston. Several months of clumsy communications lengthened the process, but ultimately Clinton agreed to Arnold's asking price and related demands for the betrayal of West Point. 20,000 pounds plus a command in the British Army. Simultaneously, Schuyler and others were so successful in advocating for Arnold that initially Washington appointed him to a field command with responsibility for a division. This would have prevented Arnold from personal control of West Point and ruined his plan to defect to the British. He vehemently protested to Washington that he needed a stationary assignment and was still too injured to return to active combat. Washington had sent one of his most capable generals in Nathaniel Green to the Carolinas and desired an experienced replacement and initially pressed Arnold to take the post. But Arnold remained adamant and a disappointed Washington reluctantly appointed him as the commander of West Point. Arnold arrived on August 4th. West Point, the military academy, was not established until 1804. In Arnold's day, the installation was a series of forts and artillery emplacements that controlled a strategic portion of the Hudson River Valley and access to New England. He immediately began to reduce the garrison's strength by assigning various details of men to menial tasks away from the fortress area, making its capture potentially easier. He also looted provisions from West Point's general supplies and either sold them for cash or served them at his own personal table maintaining to his aides that he was only repaying himself for what Congress had unjustifiably denied. Depleting food in this fashion also would have prevented any attempt to resist a British siege. In September, when Arnold received word that Washington would visit without his army, he also informed the British of details that would potentially allow for Washington's capture. The confusing machinations between Andre and Arnold for the previous year were a mere precursor to the disastrous meeting that occurred in the early morning hours of September 22, 1780. After several attempts to meet Arnold failed through miscommunication, Andre successfully was rowed under a pretext from a British warship anchored on the Hudson. He was to meet with Arnold and Joshua Het Smith, a local loyalist Arnold recruited to help with the meeting's logistics. Arnold did not want Smith to know the exact nature of Andre's mission and passed him off as a young merchant involved with a potentially lucrative venture involving loyalists in New York City. 
Andre had been told specifically by Henry Clinton not to meet behind enemy lines, to travel only under his actual name, and to always remain in uniform. Initially scheduled to meet Arnold and Smith aboard the HMS Vulture, Andre improvised and agreed to meet Arnold along the riverbank. He was already in violation of another of Clinton's orders to return immediately if his scheduled meeting with Arnold did not occur as planned. But the young British major, who had rapidly risen through the ranks to become one of General Clinton's most trusted and prominent assistants, was still held with jealousy and contempt by many of his more socially prominent colleagues. Engineering the seizure of a major American fortress and the defection of a general to the British considered to be the most daring and imaginative within the opposition would have been quite an accomplishment. Understanding that he might not get another opportunity, Andre left the protection of his ship and headed on a small boat provided by Smith to American territory along the Hudson, where he met privately for hours with Arnold. Unfortunately, local militia launched an impromptu artillery attack on the British warship, and it was forced to retreat downriver. Andre was supposed to be rowed back to the ship by two of Smith's farmhands that had retrieved him from the vulture, but he was no longer able to return to it safely. Arnold, not wanting to prolong his stay with Smith, a character already suspected as a loyalist, left Andre with his conspirator at Smith's large estate and hurriedly returned to West Point. During his final consultation with the British Major, Arnold gave him precisely handwritten information about West Point's design and fortifications and insisted that he convey them to Clinton, most likely to increase the potential value of his information. He instructed Andre to hide them in his boots and destroy them if he was endangered, an extremely risky demand. He also gave Smith and Andre two passes to facilitate the Britons' escape. Joshua Het Smith would now have to convey Andre to British lines by land, a prospect that terrified the young officer. He additionally violated another of Clinton's orders, changing out of his scarlet military coat and putting on civilian clothes as a disguise. Bearing secret documents, dressed as a civilian, traveling with a pass containing a forged name, and behind enemy lines, John Andre could no longer even claim to be anything but a spy. On the night of September 22, 1780, Smith and Andre set out on horseback from Smith's residence in West Haverstraw, New York, and successfully crossed the Hudson by ferry near present-day Verplank, New York. They made it to Crompend, where they were confronted by militiamen who inspected their passes from Arnold and, satisfied that they were on business from the general, warned them that cowboys, the name for loyalist criminals who stole livestock and robbed travelers, were active that evening. Reluctantly, Andre and Smith spent the night in lodgings provided by a farmer, and after sleeping in their clothes in the same bed, they set out again. Smith and Andre stopped for breakfast at a farmhouse near what is now the Croton Reservoir. Afterwards, Smith stunned Andre by telling him that he needed to return to report to Arnold and Andre should make the rest of the trip on his own. He reassured the concerned British officer that he was only a few miles from safety and that his safe passage was assured. In fact, they were still almost 15 miles from British lines and were still in a neutral area where both cowboys and their patriot counterparts, the Skinners, frequently operated. To his credit, Andre successfully navigated an additional 13 miles on his own until disaster struck. Although the three men who detained John Andre, John Paulding, Isaac Van Wert, 
and Daniel Williams have entered the history books as heroes of the Revolution. They were in fact thugs operating in the shadow of British lines, intent on robbing any loyalists who happened into their midst. When Andre approached their hiding place near what is now the Tarrytown Sleepy Hollow border, the three suddenly darted out onto the road and detained Andre at musket point. Andre, confused by Paulding's Hessian coat, warned to facilitate an escape from a British jail in New York City only days earlier, believed that he had to be way beyond British lines. He blurted out that he was a British officer and was glad to be among friends. Informed roughly that he was among Americans, Andre tried to backtrack and protest that he was actually on official business from General Arnold and presented his pass. Aggressively intent on money, his three captors ignored Andre's threats of Arnold's retribution and forced him into the woods. Correctly understanding that he was a British officer, they insisted that he must have valuables, stripped him naked, and found only his gold watch and a few continental dollars that Smith had given him. Leaving Andre wearing only his boots, they even ripped apart his coat and his saddle in search of cash. Convinced it had to be somewhere, they finally forced him to take off his footwear, revealing the folded papers in one of his stockings. Only Paulding was barely literate, but he quickly deduced that Andre was a spy. The men eventually refused the desperate officer's offers of his personal possessions, horse, and a huge sum of money in return for his freedom. They reasoned that Andre would also be valuable to the American military, and Paulding, for one, wanted no part of negotiating with the British, afraid of a return to prison. Intent on the nearest American military outpost, they tied up Andre and began to march him back along the road he had already traveled. Benedict Arnold was also anxious to return to his command post as quickly as possible, as none other than George Washington and his entourage, including Alexander Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette, were expected at his home on Sunday, September 24th. Caught up in negotiations with the newly arrived French, Washington was delayed until Monday morning. By then, Continental Army officers who had custody of Andre were haggling as to how to handle the situation. Ultimately, it was decided to inform Arnold of Andre's capture and a list of documents in his possession, but to also provide the documents written in Arnold's own hand to Washington himself. This precaution was taken as some of these officers already suspected that Arnold was colluding with Andre. Because Washington had changed his route, he did not receive the documents meant for him until after his arrival at West Point and an inspection tour of the fortifications. Arnold's letter arrived earlier, while he was literally at the breakfast table with Alexander Hamilton and several other members of Washington's staff. It not only mentioned that a certain John Anderson had been detained, it added that the captive was in possession of a pass signed by Arnold, that papers were removed from his stockings, and these documents were being forwarded to George Washington. Assuming that Washington would arrive at any moment, and unaware that the commander-in-chief had decided to first tour West Point's fortifications, Arnold hastily left his guests in the dining room and frantically went upstairs to his wife's bedroom. Explaining the situation, he told her that he needed to leave immediately and did so. Also leaving behind his six-month-old son, Arnold told an aide that he needed to go to West Point and would be back in an hour. He jumped on a horse and headed to a large barge-like vessel docked along the Hudson. He told the craft's oarsmen that he was on an urgent mission downriver and they needed to hurry if he was to return in time to meet Washington. Assuming that they were probably heading to one of the American forts in the vicinity, they became confused when they were told to continue further south. 
Arnold told him that they were headed to the Vulture with a secret message from Washington and were additionally motivated with the promise of two gallons of rum. Occasionally waving a white handkerchief at the end of his cane as an improvised flag of truce, Arnold safely negotiated the 18 miles from West Point to the British warship. Once aboard, he informed the captain, who was involved with the original logistics of Andre's mission, of the current situation. He then returned to the deck where he announced to his bargemen that he had joined the British and offered to promote all of them, especially coxswain James Larvey, a personal favorite. Larvey responded, No, sir. One coat is enough for me to wear at a time. Although accounts differ as to when and their treatment, the oarsmen would eventually make it back to American lines without the barge, which Arnold retained. George Washington was already puzzled when he arrived at Arnold's West Point residence and was not officially greeted by the general or anyone else. Reassured by Arnold's disingenuous assessments that described the military installation as formidable, Washington was shocked to find incomplete earthworks and decaying barracks and the garrison undermanned. Additionally, Arnold was nowhere in sight, and upon returning to the commander's home, Washington finally discovered why. The messenger conveying the documents captured with Andre had also finally arrived, and as George Washington examined this packet, he realized that Arnold had betrayed both him and his country. He immediately sent Alexander Hamilton in pursuit of the traitor, but Arnold was already safely aboard the Vulture. Washington then turned his attention to Peggy Shippen Arnold, who had already exhibited hysterical behavior. Upon entering her bedroom, Washington was greeted with shrieks that he was not General Washington, but a man intent on killing her child. She lamented ever seeing her husband again and spoke of hallucinations so vividly and irrationally that Washington not only became convinced that she had nothing to do with the plot, she even earned his deep sympathy. He instructed his staff to treat her with kindness and understanding. Informed that Arnold was safely beyond his grasp, Washington then ordered an immediate court-martial for the only participant in the scheme he could punish, John Andre. This hasty procedure was convened on September 29th before a board of Continental Generals headed by Nathaniel Green that concluded in a day that Andre was traveling in disguise and out of uniform, behind enemy lines and not under a valid flag of truce. They recommended a sentence of death by hanging. Washington concurred, but a great deal of reluctance began to envelop the entire proceeding. Andre was a young, handsome, charismatic senior British officer who dabbled in portraiture and poetry in his spare time. His charming personality, good cheer despite his predicament, and unfailing courtesy endeared him not only to his immediate captors, but to the general public as well. Although Washington conducted a brief negotiation with Henry Clinton, the price he demanded for Andre's freedom was impossible to meet. Arnold for Andre, a trade that would have contradicted British military regulations regarding deserters. Clinton refused, also having personally guaranteed Arnold's safety if the plot failed, but asked for a postponement to allow for an official meeting in which the case could be reviewed. Clinton also enlisted Benedict Arnold to compose a letter threatening Washington with retribution against the numerous captives under British control. By the time this letter was delivered, Andre's fate had been sealed. Although his hand is said by observers to have been shaking, George Washington personally signed the order for John Andre's execution for, quote, treason against the United States, unquote. He refused Andre's last request that he be shot by firing squad. Washington reasoned that Andre was a spy, and spies are to be hanged, and he did not want to appear to be softening during one of the darkest periods of the Revolution.
At noon on October 2nd, 1780, when he was conveyed to a peach orchard in Tappan, New York, nearby the stone house where he was confined, John Andre was greeted by a gathering of over 2,000 people. By then, his story had gripped the public imagination. Accounts of the British officer toasting his captors and insisting that they remain in good cheer and sending a distraught servant from his presence until you can show yourself more manly had only endeared him further as a tragic hero, merely doing his duty. Andre, a gifted artist, blithely sketched a self-portrait on the day before his execution, and as he walked briskly to the gallows, he is said to have only hesitated when he saw that he was to be hanged and not shot. He composed himself and addressed the crowd. As I suffer in the defense of my country, I must consider this the most glorious moment of my life. Remember that I die as becomes a British officer. As many in the crowd openly wept, Andre climbed on top of the cart to be used for his makeshift execution, took the rope from the hangman, and placed it around his own neck. With the crack of a whip, the cart's attached horses quickly surged forward until Andre hung in midair, his neck immediately broken. Andre was buried on the spot in a shallow grave where he would remain until 1821. By then he was a hero and Great Britain's counterpart to Nathan Hale. His remains were exhumed and reinterred in the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey, his resurrection complete. Andre's execution only added to the fury felt towards Benedict Arnold throughout America. Peggy Arnold would experience this emotion upon leaving West Point. Given the option to return either to her family in Philadelphia or to Arnold in New York City, she chose the former, probably wisely understanding that reuniting with her villainous and reviled husband would be a curious choice, especially if she knew nothing of the plot. Accompanied by one of Arnold's former aides, she, as well as her infant son, were refused food or lodging for three days during the trip. By the time she made it to Philadelphia, residents were dragging her husband's effigy through the streets. The hostility towards Peggy Arnold in Pennsylvania was so intense that within a month she was formally banished from the colony. Now she had no other choice but to reunite with her husband. Hannah Arnold also left Philadelphia. Benedict Arnold was not discouraged by the failure of his plot and seemed only momentarily affected by the death of Andre. He presented Henry Clinton with various plans for the destruction of the American Congress and, predictably, the coastal regions surrounding Philadelphia. Not surprisingly, he also began to haggle for money, maintaining that in his last meeting with Andre, it was agreed that he be paid 10,000 pounds in the event of failure of his mission. Clinton only allowed 6000 but tossed in some money for expenses that amounted to approximately $200,000 in today's value. Adding a brigadier general's salary and not only a pension for Arnold, but a half pension for his three dependent children from his first marriage, collected and forwarded by Arnold to his sister, Clinton was extremely generous. This despite the fact that Clinton was horrified by the death of his trusted aide and was filled with deep remorse over the entire incident. Part of Arnold's unpopularity among his new comrades stemmed from the belief that he had gotten a decent man executed for nothing. Arnold would find that the British military hierarchy he was now dealing with was just as inflexible and contentious as the American Congress and his former colleagues. All of Arnold's bold plans to strike a major blow at key American military installations or cities were ignored or shelled. Only twice did Henry Clinton see fit to order Arnold into combat. Once in December of 1780 to lead a diversionary invasion of Virginia to force an American retreat from the Carolinas, 
and again to attack and burn the American port town of New London, Connecticut, in September of 1781. Part of Arnold's inactivity was due to the developing animosity from Clinton, who resented Arnold's repeated attempts to contact British military directly in London to propose various military ventures. At least the Virginia attack got Arnold out of New York City and a plot to kidnap him orchestrated specifically by George Washington. Washington had also given orders to immediately hang Arnold if he fell into American hands. By October 1781, the American Revolution came to an end with the defeat of Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown. At the time, however, there was still a great deal of indecision as to how to continue hostilities. Arnold left New York and sailed to London with his wife and two young children, intent on convincing both military and political figures that he should be placed in charge of a military effort to successfully win the conflict. But the war was now quite unpopular and when an anti-war faction forced the resignation of the government and took political power in March of 1782, Arnold was marginalized. His initial novelty quickly wore off. He did not receive a military appointment and was even refused employment by the East India Company. Initially, the Arnolds were able to live well and maintain appearances as a result of the financial windfall resulting from payments for Arnold's defection. But, Probably realizing that he was going nowhere in Britain, Arnold purchased a ship and attempted to rebuild the trading business that he successfully conducted before the Revolution. He downsized his household, left his wife and family in London, and moved to St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. Spending much of his time at sea, Arnold had several business conflicts, was involved in a suspicious warehouse fire, and even fathered an illegitimate son. His unpopularity was such that he decided to sell all of his holdings in 1791 and return to London. Arnold's finances dwindled further, and he attempted to exploit the French and British conflict by operating a privateering effort that only consumed more capital. In 1794, he narrowly avoided being hanged by the French after his arrest off of the Caribbean island of Guadalupe, saved only by bribing some of his captors and escaping to a British warship. He remained in the West Indies for two years in an official military but also voluntary capacity. As the Napoleonic Wars heated up, Arnold continually sought some sort of military appointment without success. He continued to attempt various maritime schemes, merely depleting even more of his assets. The last five years of Arnold's life were a dreary existence in which his health failed, his eldest son died during military service in Jamaica, and his only daughter suffered a stroke that left her an invalid. His wife also was greatly affected by her social isolation, and while she remained with her husband and handled his business affairs, her letters indicate a household permeated with economic uncertainty and despair. By 1801, Arnold's various afflictions, brought on by hard living and years in the tropics, sent him into a downward spiral. At the age of 60, he was an unrecognizable, embittered shell of the dashing general who braved the wilds of Maine and Quebec, stared death in the face at Saratoga, and believed that the American Revolution could never succeed without him. He died in London on June 14th and was buried with little fanfare and no military honors at a small church in a suburb of the British capital. He also left his wife Peggy with a massive 7,000 pounds of debt that she took as a point of honor to pay off, which she did successfully, her last humble accomplishment before her own death at age 44 from cancer in 1804. She possibly received help from her father, by then a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice and again a respected member of the Philadelphia community. Today, both Benedict and Peggy Arnold remain controversial figures. 
not until Sir Henry Clinton's papers were donated to the University of Michigan in the 20th century and fully examined, did it become clear that Peggy Shippen was completely aware of the plot to betray West Point and her hysteria was contrived. John Andre's exact relationship with Peggy has also been the subject of speculation, with at least one recent popular American television show depicting them as passionate lovers, and Arnold is merely a pawn in their efforts to seize West Point. While such a relationship would have been difficult, if not impossible, considering Peggy's age and cultural norms of the day, it is clear that the dashing major made quite an impression on the young girl. After Peggy's death, her family is said to have found a gold locket containing a lock of Andre's hair secreted in her possessions, a keepsake of which her husband was unaware. Today, this alleged artifact is on display at the Keep Military Museum, Dorchester, England, donated by one of Peggy Shippen's descendants. Although a plaque in the basement of tiny St. Mary's Church in Battersea, London, memorializes Arnold, his wife and daughter, in fact, Arnold's remains lie unidentified in a common grave that resulted from a renovation of the church over a century later. The stone tablet was actually donated in 2004 by an American who felt that Arnold's initial achievements in the Revolution were not properly acknowledged. Its basement location is currently occasionally used as a parish kindergarten, so obscure is this monument that it can only be viewed by special appointment, a legacy in keeping with Benedict Arnold's all-consuming personal bitterness. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Benedict Arnold. Much of the information for this effort came from the books Benedict Arnold, Patriot and Traitor by Willard Stern Randall, The Traitor and the Spy by James Flexner, and Treacherous Beauty, Peggy Shippen, the woman behind Benedict Arnold's plot to betray America. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information, and with this episode, sketches from John Andre at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>